0: Hi there, local citizens, welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, coming to you from London. Yes, folks, my time in New York has come to an end and I am now in London on the way back to Ghana. So you'll be hearing a lot more of this African voices that you're used to hearing in the next few months. But before we get there, I have a wonderful treat that I'm able to bring to you here in London. I'm in an area that I've never been before, beautiful views inside and outside. And I was fortunate to meet this gentleman via another Global Citizens guest, Natasha Moore. I'll put in the show notes a link to her episode but I'm really happy to host my guest. He is a serial entrepreneur and has served on boards and in the C-suite of fast growth technology companies since 2001. His experience includes AI, SaaS-based mobile and health technology companies. He has helped sell organizations to listed companies, including Microsoft and Nuance. He has been named one of the most powerful Black and BAME business people in the UK by the Power List and the Financial Times. Mr. Eric Collins, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Florence, for having me. It's good seeing you.
0: Yes, indeed, indeed, indeed. So, Eric, let's get started with the first question that I ask all of my guests. Mm -hmm. Where are you from? Where are you local and what is your craft?
1: So I would say I always like answering the question of where I'm from by saying that I'm from the American South. I believe that that is the sort of viewpoint that I take of the world that actually informs much of my life being from the South, having been born in Alabama and having grown up in Greensboro, North Carolina. So I was born in Tuskegee at a historically Black college and university, uh, then known as Tuskegee Institute. And then I grew up in the shadow of North Carolina, A&T State University, as well as Bennett College, one of the oldest Black women's college in the United States. So for me, the South has, very, has been very informative of the kind of person that I am. In addition, I live here in London. So I've been living in London since 2014. And what is your craft? You know, my craft is really the catalytic inputs for underrepresented people in a variety of areas. So when I say catalytic inputs, normally what we're doing is I'm an investor simply, and I invest capital, which is pooled capital from third parties into companies that have growth potential and to be able to return according to the metrics that are most important. And for my company, the most important metrics are that you can return capital at a very high rate. And then the secondary piece is that you can actually create jobs that are future resistant. So that's what I do generally on a day-to-day basis, but the same kind of basic structure and the same sort of infrastructure which exists, i.e. catalytic capital that's being used or catalytic resources, which is being used in order to get to some type of an outcome, which is currently not present in the world. We also use that same thing in terms of social justice. We use that same thing in terms of the arts. So there are a variety of of areas in which we then try and infuse resources to get outcomes that are game changing.
0: Mm, I have so many questions based on that statement, but let's dive a little bit more into your local and, and where you're from and how you ended up here in the UK from, from that path. So tell us a little bit more about what inspired you to really to kind of engage in your craft and how those roots were sown in the US.
1: Hmm. So, I come from an interesting family. So, my family is a family that has had a continuous family union for 70 years, so multi-generational. I come from a family that has lived almost in the same spot in the United States for almost 300 years. Wow. It is just a very a very small space oh. that we come from on the eastern shore of Virginia, which is right on the Atlantic Ocean. It's split, and the land um, separates the Atlantic Ocean from the Chesapeake Bay, and it's very isolated. It's very very rural, and it's very poor. But that's where my family has been for 300 years until this last generation, which is my father's generation, which is when they moved away. Many of them moved away. One or two stayed, but most of them moved away. In any case, that is where I am from. From that space, though, my father originates. And my father leaves that space in order to go to university and study Moving from the family farm to then study agriculture and become a botanist and get his PhD in plant physiology and then to teach and then to join a a commercial organization that was a European company back in the 1970s. He was an executive for a Swiss chemical company out of Basel, Switzerland. So I have a father who, when I was a child, we're going to the airport to put him on a plane so that he can fly to Europe for his business meetings. And so, and this is a black executive. So it was, you know, it's kind of doing exactly what my father would have done. It's just, I've now transposed my I've transferred my location from what was a state side. And then you do your work in Europe to a space where I'm actually in Europe and then I do my work a bit more globally, but mainly in Europe and the UK. That's Mm -hmm. it. So how did I get here? I think it's it's natural, right? In that way. So that's one piece. But then I also have been running for the majority of my career fast growth technology companies. Ones that are intended to be on the scale and influence of organizations with names like Amazon or or Google. That's really those are the kinds of organizations in which I've worked, but I've worked generally at the C suite. So I've been very high up Mm -hmm. in these organizations, and it's been my job to make sure that these organizations don't just survive, but that they thrive and then actually return a great deal of capital to stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And I've been able to do that on both sides of the Atlantic for about four times in a row. And so, at one point, someone said to me when I was in North America, well, we have an opportunity for you in the UK, and I said, well, why not? So mm-hmm. that's how I came because it was actually a job. So I came as a worker, I came as an immigrant, I came as a person mm-hmm. who also had a short-term view of what was going to happen and then to return quickly to the United States. Mm-hmm. But I've, I've been here, uh, as I said, for since 2014, and it's now two, at the end of 2023, so it's almost 10 years exactly right. that I've been here.
0: Right, right, right. So you, you describe your father's experience and your growing up experience as, though it was like today. Mm -hmm. And we know that that era was very different. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if experiencing your growing up in the South, you know, Mm -hmm. you have this business executive father and it is still not so far after the civil rights movement started to take hold. And so did you feel somehow sheltered from it? Did you live in it? Did you feel so I'll give you an example because my family is Ghanaian growing up in the U.S. I never felt like the burden of race. In the mm-hmm. same way that most Black Americans feel it, you know, I got teased being the African mm-hmm. child. You're above all of that. Mm-hmm. You are, you know, you come from this, that, the other. So I never felt any kind of the inferiority that is kind of rampant mm-hmm. in a lot of underserved, under-resourced, you know, marginalized communities. Mm-hmm. So then, you having that experience, and and so how would you place that experience in your being able to kind of I don't I want to say navigate mm-hmm. <laughs> the U.S. Mm-hmm. in a different way.
1: It's interesting. My existence, I would say, is replicated by you know all the people with whom I grew up. It was it was a it was an existence that centered around family, centered around you know immediate family, extended family, and then also then chosen families. There was a church family, there was a school family, there was a neighborhood family, and all those families were very you know, all of these people are, most many of the people were, individuals had lots and lots of choices as to what they could do and where they could do it. And all of them made decisions to stay in the South. Mm -hmm. They believed that this is, you know, this is the space, which is for us an authentic set of experiences. And this is a space where we can actually prosper and our children will prosper being here in the South, which I actually agree. There's a writer named Charles Blow, who's written a book called The Devil You Know, the New York Times columnist. And it's about sort of why the great migration should be reversed and Black people should be moving back from other sort of spaces to the south, which is where you have an accumulation of wealth and other sorts of things. And there has been an infrastructure which exists for, you know, black activity and attainment. So, you know, in some ways, my family was just an example of that. Having my mother and father having met, mom is not from a Southern family. She's from a Northern family uh, from Philadelphia. And so having met and married, then they immediately as a young couple moved to Alabama and, you know, decided to have children in the height of civil rights, uh, the, the, the hot bed of civil rights in the 1960s, early to late 1960s. And to be in Tuskegee, Alabama, which is, you know, a small rural, community and it is an academic community but sort of set in the middle of you know very red alabama and you know to spend all that time in those places you know having to take literacy tests in order to vote having to do, you know, pay poll taxes and all that. But that was part of the fight, right? If you have the some advantages, you take it, you take them to the fight and then you exist within there. And then, of course, you're with all sorts of other academics and you're with students who are, you know, completely radical, I'm sure, also. And my mother will tell the story that, you know, she's pregnant with me and pregnant with my brother and pregnant with my sister. And, you know, they're marching and they're doing other sorts of things. So I've always considered Blackness to be a source of strength because I always think about other as being a sort of a consciousness that exists and as that consciousness allows you to do things which are unavailable, um, and to look at situations in ways that are that others who are just they're unwilling to necessarily view, because the prisms that you have and the sort of you know multifaceted approach to viewing what a situation is, and therefore also thinking about problem solving sets and others are very different if you're black, and it can be more robust if you're black. You understand sort of how the world works, but then you can understand there are other ways in which we can make things happen. So I've always considered a source of strength. And I would say that living in black communities, going to black churches—I didn't attend black schools, but you know, like some population of black students in each one of the schools that I attended. Those were all things that I found to be great sources of strength. I, my parents were very much Black Power, Black Beautiful, all that. We're all those people, sure. you know. So it's not—I never felt—and you know, you're coming from an upper middle class existence, yeah. so you know, you're like, you know, the world is—you can buy, you can sell, you can go, you can do, right. you know. You're so what's sure. there's no there's not a limitation in that respect.
0: Makes a lot of sense and. I, I just find it so fascinating that your U.S. roots mm-hmm. being that long yeah. and that you have this 70 year running family reunion. That's amazing. Uh, and do you go every year?
1: Oh, yeah. Ah. Oh, yeah. oh, absolutely. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's something, um, you know, I have my father is one of my children and there is uh, so there are a lot of first cousins and we do convene, sure. you know, the first cousins are the ones who now the older generation is almost all gone. And I think there's only one of my father's sibling who's left. And so we now spend all of our time as the next generation and then the generations behind us. So it's it's very much part of inculcating people into being sure, a college. Sure, so, right, <laughs> yeah, I love that. What, what it means to be a college.
0: Um, question, is that sign in your um, foyer uh aside from my aside uncle's, from family
1: oh yeah so ah. my, my uncle who actually stayed in, in my family's from a place called Mashapongo, virginia okay. uh which is a, a named uh, by it's a native american word um meaning like stinky water or stagnant water but so it sounds very attractive doesn't it <laughs> but my my uncle who is one of my father's older brothers and one of his favorites was my godfather uh-huh. and he ran a store he ran a gas station and, and he was a mechanic until about the 1980s, and then closed down the gas station and made it went from being Collins Texco to being Collins Market. Okay. And those the Coca Cola signs were obviously part of what was you know Coca Cola wanted to make sure that you knew as you were driving down the highway. He had a um, store right on the highway. He's one of the few Black entrepreneurs who actually had a store had highway frontage, which of course is a good thing to have because sure. it causes people to stop mm-hmm. and all sorts of people and it's easy to access, et cetera, Easy on. Easy off, and so you know that Coca-Cola sign. When I bought my partner and I bought the store from my uncle some decades ago, and this was in the garage. And so we took it and we brought it to Europe with us. Wow, and it's been with us when we lived in Washington D.C., and then we brought it to Europe also. Wow, so that's it. Okay, yeah, it's always a reminder, but it also looks like an installation. It sort of looks yes. like a, an Andy Warhol. Yeah, so it's a, yes. it's a it's a thing.
0: Indeed, indeed. I'll ask about art in a moment, but I want to get deeper into your why the where. So you, just, you said you it was a work. That brought you to London. Mm-hmm. But we're really curious because you could live anywhere in London and you're, you're here. So one is a little bit of how did you come to be living, working and playing where you currently live and in general in the UK specifically?
1: Interesting. When you are a person who is in the financial advisory space, Uh, you're taking people's money, you're investing, and you're giving them return, there are certain places where you are expected to be. And in my opinion, it's the unexpected places where you find real inspiration. Mm -hmm. So being in Kensington, Mayfair, Mm -hmm. um, being in Chelsea, that's all very predictable. Mm -hmm. Being in East London, in a neighborhood that used to be um, sort of overrun with uh, sort of organized crime, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And was before that sort of, it was the docks. It was, you know, it was extremely kind of a masculine space, a very poor portion of London for a long period of time. And to live in a converted warehouse, I mean, it's all just not what people would expect. Most people would expect us to be living in one of the leafy sort of neighborhoods and, you know, behind our gated, behind our gate and living, you know, sort of a life like sure. that. Yeah. But for us, it is and I guess this is also the way with my family all along. You are going to be in places where your existence actually adds something to the community. And I, when I say your existence, the how you deploy your capital using the high street that is actually a tiny little high street. Actually, if you look out the window, you can actually see to a thing called the Turks Head, which is a pub. The restaurant at the bottom of that is owned by a Jamaican Israeli and the, and the uh, menu is French. Provencal. Oh, wow.
0: Very interesting.
1: So you, those are the sorts of things that you find in a certain type of a neighborhood. Sure. And so it's not as though we, we knew this when we came here. We just knew that it, was, it felt quiet. It felt leafy. It felt a little bit removed. It was not a place we'd ever heard of. Yeah. Um, we'd always lived south of the river, and we'd always <laughs> lived relatively central. This is still relatively central, but we chose the space because, for us, it was a nice new adventure, like coming to London mm. in the first place. So it was an adventure, and this adventure, has, and these adventures always pay off, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they might not pay off in the way that you think, but taking a little bit of the road less traveled, and that's the same way with investing, taking a little bit, and I invest in women and people of color generally in Europe and the UK. So taking the road less traveled is one where the adventure starts and adventures unfold in the most fascinating of ways. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the reasons why we're here.
0: Okay. Okay. I love it. Okay. So you're trained as a lawyer
1: i did train as a lawyer
0: right and you are now in the innovation space Mm -hmm. and i i think lawyers generally you know have flexibility to do and be many different things and so did you practice so you're always in the advising
1: So, when I went to law school, I I wrote a book recently called We Don't Need Permission, How Black Business Can Change Our World. And one of the stories I tell is about my law school experience. And I went to law school because I had intended to be the first black governor of North Carolina. Mm. And that, when I I was the only person, there was an entire infrastructure around Eric returning to North Carolina, having gone to undergraduate, and then, you know, great, go on to law school, and then come back to North Carolina and change the face of politics. And my first day of law school, and this, I, I still think that that is what I've been doing. However, not politics, but changing the face of um, the world. But my first day of law school, my first class, I, I sort of had this premonition leading up to that first class when I was reading some pre-materials. But my first day of law school was a, and my first class was a contracts class. And I knew from the minute that class began that I made a terrible mistake. Mm. Made a terrible, terrible mistake insofar as... I just, the the type of rigorous thinking, the type of analytic um, sort of parsing of fact patterns was not my strong suit. And it was not going to be something that I could be captivated by. It's something I could be, that I was going to be oppressed by for three years as opposed to be captivated by. And, you know, immediately I had to start innovating because... As you said, being a lawyer and having a legal education, it's like a finishing school. It's like going to, you know, Miss Manor's School or something. It teaches you or being part of a cotillion preparation. It teaches you something which is a part of finishing you. And it's very, very valuable. So to the extent uh, that I knew I had that and I had gotten into school and I gotten into, you know, one of the best, if not the best school in the world, it's like, why waste that opportunity? And so I then tried to formulate a way for it to work for me. So I had to innovate a way for it to work for me. So part of that was never practicing law, except during the summers. I did try Mm -hmm. um, to work at law firms in New York and then Atlanta. And I, you know, had fine experiences. But I knew that if that was the way that the rest of my life was going to unfold, at least from a career perspective, that wasn't going to be it. Mm -hmm. And so I, I then innovated something else. And, you know, I began to do other sorts of things in law school i began to make other sorts of connections i began to sort of think about other sorts of careers and then went to management consulting so mm-hmm. there's constantly been an advisory kind of capacity sure. but even that was about you know still i hadn't made real decisions so i was still in finishing school i was still being a, a management consultant i recommend it for everybody uh, who hasn't made a decision it's a great way for you to learn about lots and lots of different companies and lots and lots of different sort of problems of these companies and get paid for it mm-hmm. it's all it's it's a way of actually going to business school without going to business right. school. right
0: makes a lot of sense so did you think that being in management consulting prepared you for what was going to be this tech boom because Mm -hmm. you finished law school before the tech boom started Mm -hmm. and then you immediately so for the most part after your time in management consulting went straight into that space so what what do you think helped you to decide or what was what was your curiosity with the sector at that time,
1: so the, the main group clients I worked at a company called CMI, Conflict Management Inc. It had actually been started by a guy named Roger Fisher who wrote a book called Getting to Yes: How to Negotiate mm-hmm. Everything, and so it was, you know, sort of the seminal book about negotiation theory and practice. And I had been uh, teaching assistant for him. I'd taken his class. I'd been a teaching assistant for him. I'd done a bunch of stuff, and then I joined his consulting firm. And so this consulting firm. When you come into a consulting firm, there's a certain practice that exists and that's paying the bills. This is what we do. So we they consulted to the professional services sector, places like at that point there was Coopers Lye brand. These don't these companies don't exist anymore. There was PwC, surprise so Price Waterhouse. Coopers was Deloitte and Touche, D and I mean, it's now Deloitte. There's no Touche. Ernst and Young. There are a bunch of these firms, and so we used to we used to consult to them in terms of their challenges in term in partnership and in business models as they were evolving and. The decrease in the importance of the audit and the increase in the ascendancy of consulting services and advisory services. So that was one. We also worked with um, Microsoft, but most importantly, I worked with IBM. Mm-hmm. And IBM was you know at one point had been the most valuable company in the world Mm -hmm. and had been extremely profitable, had made many a IBM millionaire, and had also been a place where women and people of color had found a toehold in the professional world. Mm -hmm. And um, that organization was going through a great deal of change back at the end of the late 80s and the early 90s. And I started working with them in the early 90s into the mid 90s. And the thing that I noted about that organization organization was that there were all of these Anchors that existed within the organization, as with many innovative companies or companies that have been innovative at one period of time, that were revenue generating and highly impactful, but that if indeed if we didn't jettison change or do something with them, they were going, those anchors were going to drag us down. Mm-hmm. And so this was an organization that was that was in real time contending with it, and I got to be part of the conversation mm-hmm. with their with that organization about what you should do. That for me was the beginning, but. And you tie that to, then I'm also talking to Microsoft. So this is Microsoft. At that point, Microsoft is not the behemoth that it is now with the balance sheet like it is now. It was a big company and it was an important company, but wasn't the company sure. that it is now. And so to be able to see that company in its ascendancy and sort of the very ruthless fashion in which it went about, you know, assembling what was necessary to become the company it is today, that organization versus a sort of a, a much more a genteel organization like IBM and sort of the barbarians versus the others. It was fascinating. And so that juxtaposition helped me to see sort of there are opportunities, there are differences, and there are different ways. And one is a New York company and the other one's a Seattle company. Mm-hmm. It's also sort of an East Coast, West Coast thing. And so I'm like, wow. And so I got access to those types of things. Now, many people might have taken that and said, well, you know, there are other areas of the practice group that we could actually look at. But I decided that that was very, very interesting. And I decided that there, that also I decided in those organizations, a black man from the South had a better opportunity there than a black man from the South had in a professional services organization that was based on partnership. Mm-hmm. And when I looked at those partnerships, there were no black partners yeah. or there were very few black partners. And it's not as though the president of the companies, these other companies, these technology companies were black. But what I could see is that if you're talking about disruption, if you're talking about doing things differently, you can always have a conversation in those, in those companies about why is what we're doing disruptive? Why is it that having, you know, no black presidents of divisions. Why is that a disruptive activity? But in these other sort of collegial places where there are both um, informal, formal ways of evaluating people. So the informal, do you fit in the formal? Can you do the work? Uh, and where the informal becomes so very important in terms of progression. Mm-hmm. Whereas in these other spaces, I could see if you were in the sales organization and you had a sales target and you reach your sales target. Now you might be assigned a bad territory, but if you reach your sales target, you, you get a certain sort of compensation. There's not this sort of inherent approach, which is based on how I think about you or how I feel about you, or at least there's less of it. Sure. So I said, there's more opportunity to to be disruptive in a disruptor than there is to be a disruptor in, you know, something which is part of the status quo. Sure. And these organizations were definitely part of the status quo. And I think maybe I felt a bit of that at law school also mm-hmm. and my summers and mm-hmm. the people coming and people were coming to I mean, you know, at Harvard Law School, everyone would come and everyone wanted a black lawyer, so it's not as though people weren't recruiting me, that's not the oh, issue. Sure. But I could look down the road and I could see they were not There weren't a 100 Black partners among the 4,000 or 400 Black partners. I could see that there might be one Black partner. And you're like, those odds are very good. These people are all smarter than me. These people are harder working than I am and they want it more than I do me to get to that point something's going to happen in fact my friends and i made a movie about this that was hilarious so it all it all comes around and all of this sort of feeds into it itself
0: that's fascinating and and it's so interesting the way that you approached it obviously because you were thinking about your future thinking about where you could be the most successful and so you enter into this space and then you're immediately now advising at the sea as, as part C of a level. team, the we're team.
1: advising at the C-level. Mm-hmm. But it's not just me. It's not sure. me, obviously. Sure. They, they were like, oh, yeah, you just came out of law school. Tell us what to do. <laughs> that, that, that took years. And in fact, sure. I, was, I was described by one client as being useless. Oh. Useless. <laughs> that was that was their exact quote it was not it was not that Eric is you know add something to the team like you know at least he dresses nice it was just he's useless so no that i I found myself in another situation there, and in fact, it's funny I'm advising and I'm advising from a consulting firm which uses a partnership model, and so i have even though I'm dealing with disruptive companies, I'm in a company and I'm working for a company where Mm, it is it's the, the same. Old, it's the old status quo model. approach to, to moving forward. Huh,
0: huh. And there's
1: one Black partner in the firm, a Black woman who's a partner in the firm.
0: Okay. So I want to tease a little bit of something out from this governorship.
1: Mm-hmm. Being the governor, yes. to become the governor of North Carolina.
0: Yes, yes, uh-huh. yes, yes, yes. So this kind of goes back to like inspiration, like policy. Where, where did that come from? Why, why was that a goal of yours? Or why were you kind of drawn into that potential path?
1: So, um, two things. I would say, I go back a little bit, that, you know, talking to you about this and having then written this book, I've been in a position where I've had to reflect. So, I'm not sure at the time. I'm pretty confident at the time as I'm moving through life, I'm not that deliberate. (laughs) What I'm deliberate about is saying yes to a lot of things. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm deliberate to experimentation, okay. and I'm deliberate about adventure. That's true. Sure. But in terms of sort of having a highly choreographed approach and sort of saying, you know, by doing this, by doing that, I'm going to get to this point, little of that happened. I could, say, I could say, you know, if you get into law school, a state law school in the United States, or if you get into Harvard Law School, where should you go in order to get the most bang for your buck and go to Harvard Law School? Mm-hmm. That I could make that determination. That was easy. Yes. But to say then, should I actually actually practice law in North Carolina, New York, or Atlanta. You know, it all felt the same, and I'm not sure, you know, what would have happened in any of those situations. But the thing that the, the governorship when I was growing up, I was called the governor at church. Mm-hmm. There's a minister, Reverend Otis Harrison, Otis L. Harrison, who was the minister of Shiloh Baptist Church, which is where we attended in Greensboro, North Carolina. It's an interesting church because three of the four young men who, were, who started the sit in movement. To integrate lunch counters in the South, went to AT State University. Four of them went to AT State University and three of them went to this church. Their families, they had been raised in this church. So this is a church that was a hotbed of civil rights activity and agitation. And Reverend Harrison, when I came, was the was a minister. And Reverend Harrison was a wonderful community organizer and you know, was never interested in the material things. You know, there were ministers all over the states who had private jets and all this other sort of stuff. His was, let's put the money back into, we did housing projects. There were, um, you know, after school programs, there were early childhood education, there were the Girl Scouts, there were dance groups, there were, you know, just everything. It was just a, it was a community center that was around a church with a sim- and people had similar views as to what we need to do in the world. And it just wasn't Greensboro, North Carolina, but it was the, it was the state It was the nation, and then it was also the world. And he and other people decided that, you know, I had some traits. I had political aspirations. I, you know, I was was always running for student, student office and all that other sort of stuff. But they felt what the kind of person that I was, they could translate that into something else. What could happen? And we would back this sort of a person to do those sorts of things. And so part of it was their idea, but I certainly embraced it, the idea that there's a possibility there, and this is the, something that I actually could do, and that the infrastructure, if they were still willing, when I came back, would say, let's let's assemble ourselves in order to get it done. And so that's what it takes. It takes a village to, to, you know, to, to elect the governor, and that's what they intended, and they really wanted that to happen. And at the time, we had some other examples. Ha- Harvey Gantt, who eventually, I think, became, who eventually became the mayor of Charlotte. And made a very effective run against, uh, you know, a known racist and a known segregationist, Jesse Helms, who was a governor, oh, from, you know, who, nice. yeah, yeah. who was a who was a senator from North Carolina, along with Strom Thurmond in South Carolina. Others, there were a bunch of those people, and he made a very strong showing against him as a Democratic nominee. When I was growing up, and then there was um, Doug Wilder, who was actually the governor of um, of one term governor in Virginia. Mm-hmm. Only has one term governors, mm-hmm. and so he was a one term governor as a black man who'd come through the system and had mm-hmm you know, made it to the governor's mansion. So he, you know, there were examples that were around, and certainly there were a lot of mayors in other sort of cities, including Denver had a black mayor, Seattle had a black mayor. I mean, lots of places that were very strong. Cleveland had black mayors. Detroit obviously had a black mayor. And even at that point, then you had Harold Washington, and you actually had David Dinkins, so you actually had New York and you also had Chicago. So you know, there was the idea that, in my view, politics actually was a way to get change in the world. And I still do believe that. But then it became clear to me that even politics, it was driven not only by the number of votes that you could assemble, but how much money you could also assemble. Right. And it became very clear to me that there was, I could be behind the scenes, I didn't have to be the governor, I didn't have to you know, do all those sorts of, I didn't have to spend all that time making sure that my life was above reproach to become a governor. Instead, I start to look at things like, you know, who's a very influential business person? Isn't Lee Coca very influential? He never was elected mm-hmm. to an office. Mm-hmm. And then I keep going, and it's like, isn't Henry Ford, wasn't he very, you know, and he never got elected to an office. Wasn't Getty and Rockefeller and, and the Vanderbilts. And they're still talked about, and they never got elected to any of of them. Some of their children did, et cetera. Maybe some of them actually did. And then I started looking, it's like, well, what haven't we done? Have we ever had, and I started reading Black black enterprise and certainly looking at ebony and other sorts of magazines, publications in the united states and saying there seems to be some kind of connection if we actually have capital and where capital is coming from is from these businesses and we have them at such a large scale then we have the ability to write other sorts of checks and we have the, um, the ability to write other narratives and so that's when i started thinking about business as being mm-hmm, a way to mm-hmm.
0: do that but you do have a little bit of a policy pivot that mm-hmm. you did experience so tell us about that experience with the uh, the former president
1: but in undergrad i actually studied policy making so that was my uh, that was my so i didn't say politics i didn't do that i've studied a thing called it was then called the Woodrow wilson school but yeah that no longer at Princeton university but that so i studied public policy making and domestic policy making and so that was part of what i actually spent some time in preparing myself to be governor at law school i met well undergrad i met um michelle robinson who was who was a student there and then at law school i met barack and you know those are relationships that came as a set meaning that there were a whole bunch of black people who were like barack and and, and michelle they were very they were very ambitious they were brilliant they were ready they're ready to change the world and they are changing the world and so that sort of network was something that was actually part of my experience, the same way that I would had in Greensboro, North Carolina, I'm sure the same way my parents had it in Tuskegee, that all of a sudden, I grew a bit more and a bit more broad, and also a bit more powerful. And that group has therefore shown its power and exerted it right. in various places. And I just did the I was asked to be part of a committee on a topic that's actually very interesting to me. But the most interesting part of this is not that it was an appointment by the president, but that it was run by Kathy Hughes. Mm. And Kathy Hughes is a self-made billionaire black woman who is running out of the Small Business Administration a, a council. The, the name of the council is unimportant. What's more important is the impact of what it was doing. It was studying what are the ways in which we can work with underrepresented groups in order to make sure that with government contracting and their set, their set asides in the United States, that those organizations have sufficient capital to be able to really expand and become key suppliers for the government, as opposed to, you know, sort of opportunistic suppliers for the government. And so, because they're, you know, what is it? We just saw something from Lockheed Martin or something that's trying to create some new fighter, some fighter jet, and they have spent, what, forty four billion? Mm-hmm. So the amounts of money which are available for partnering are absolutely extreme. They're very large checks that are available, but most uh, black businesses that are working in the set aside program are working for relatively small amounts of capital. And so the question of how do we what is wrong and why are we not able to actually make those organizations bigger and what do we need to put in place in order to make that happen? So and to work with Kathy Hughes, a person who having started with one radio station and then built that into an empire. Is was really a great privilege in a black woman being in that position. I thought I was like that was that was like I was in heaven. That yeah, was heaven.
0: I can imagine. So before I we get into what you're doing now, because that feels like it dovetails perfectly with mm-hmm. where you are now, what you're doing. I want to ask about glocal speak. Okay. So we want to hear what you hear. So I ask you to share a word, a phrase, or a saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience, and why or how you come to value it as a global speak.
1: One in two black children in the UK live below the poverty line that is a that Mm. just makes your blood run cold one in two that was that figure came from 2018 before the pandemic and before we had um this this crisis of inflation and the crisis of the cost of living Mm. so every time you see a black child on the street you see two of them together one is living in poverty that is everything in my opinion and so that sort of quote is what actually keeps me up at night. The question of what what are we doing? How do we actually not take to the streets as black people, white people, whomever, yeah, underrepresented yeah. people, yeah. to say that this cannot stand and that we need to do something about this immediately. And um, why is it not the first thing on every agenda? Why is it not the first the last thing that we that we talk about before we leave as to what is the way in which we're gonna impact it today?
0: That's perfect in a segue into what you're doing now. So you are a, a co founder. Mm-hmm. of Impact X Capital. That's a double bottom line investment firm. So tell us about ImpactX mm-hmm. and uh, what you're doing.
1: So back in 2018, this statistic and a few and some help from some other people helped us to say that probably we should focus on a solution. And if we're if, if not us, who, if not now, when? So a group of people got together at a person's a friend of mine's house to talk about their 40 about 40 people who were invited black leaders from education, from government, from business, from sports, from entertainment to talk about what it is that we can do to help black Britain. Mm-hmm. And that became, and one of the things that they decided is that every solution that they came up with as a possible answer required capital. And so the question was, are we going to continue to go hat in hand to somebody else and say, believe in what we believe in, prioritize what we prioritize and keep it in your sights, no matter what else is happening in the world, or are we going to do it ourselves? And so They asked me because I'm an operating executive, uh, having spent time in the consulting firm afterward, I then went into these technology companies as an operating executive to make them grow and help them to grow and help them to flourish. And so they said, Eric, maybe you can put this together. And so from a standing start, I went out and studied where were the challenges associated with uh, funding? And was this a challenge that required um, grants? Is it a challenge that required debt and lending, or is it a challenge that could be addressed with some other sort of means? And I put forward the hypothesis that I believe the greatest impact could be made if indeed we um, invested in companies using venture capital as the means and try and grow companies of scale that would eventually uh, get to rival some of the biggest companies you've ever seen and in the process would actually create a great deal of wealth, not only for the immediate stakeholders, employees and founders and other sorts of things, but then shareholders, et cetera. And then indeed, it would also create jobs that were future resistant. And, and if we did that, we would then have a change. And then within a short period of time, because the other thing is we can't take forever to do this, Black Britain could be improved mm-hmm. and we could answer, we could address that concern. So that's how uh, ImpactX came about. We expanded the vision a little bit, not just to the UK, but to Europe. We decided, I did th- some research about where were their pockets of opportunity, i.e. both there were Individuals who had participated in industry sectors for a while, and they had also been successful, and then been able to see sort of all, and been able to see cycles of growth and contraction, et cetera, and therefore could come up with disruptive solutions that were going to work, and then from there make that into uh, a question of sort of what was going to be our investment thesis, what kind of money would be be investing, what sort of size checks at what stage, and what would be the return possibilities, and that became ImpactX, Mm. which now invests in digital technology, health education, well-being and media and entertainment in Europe and the UK and uh, focuses specifically on underrepresented people because there's a market inefficiency. Proportionate capital doesn't go to women and people of color or to other underrepresented groups and or to other underrepresented groups. And so we take that market inefficiency as an as a great reason to um, think of to be can recast as an opportunity and we invest in that opportunity for market scale returns and then job creation mm,
0: mm-hmm. that's what i do so the Millions of dollars question. <laughs> so your first bottom line is of course returns, right? Absolutely. And then the second bottom line is the impact.
1: Job creation. Job so
0: job so creation. It, so that is the metric. That's so it is really metric. about how many That's metrics. Okay.
1: How many jobs do we create and for and for women and people of color, we actually on a quarterly basis measure with our investment companies with companies in which we invest, which are called our portfolio companies, we ask them to tell us, how many people of color and how has that changed from mm-hmm. quarter to quarter sure. if there's ever a problem with it? We then sort of help them to come up with a plan to make sure they get back on the right track.
0: So do you look at also kind of the turnover of the, the company's funds or revenues in communities, underrepresented communities? Mm-hmm. It's just the capital and the just, business doing the business. What
1: we know is there are all sorts. There's been a great study called Give Black. Mm-hmm. which is about Black philanthropy. It's specifically focused on the UK. And it shows that Black people disproportionately use their um, capital in order to underwrite particular types of projects, which are Black projects. So that And it can be education, it can be church, it can be early childhood, whatever it is. And that that money, when they have more, actually goes more toward Black organizations. So what we do know is that black people tend to and women tend to hire more black people and women they tend to promote more black people and women they tend to share with more black people and women and then when capital is available they have a tendency to over index in terms of then mm. reinvesting mm-hmm. in black people mm-hmm. and women okay
0: so, so, so in indirectly you're you're in that yeah. space wonderful wonderful as a media practitioner mm-hmm. I of course, done some research and watched some of your episodes of The Money Maker. Okay. So how did that happen? How did you, how does that fit into the the brand that is Eric Collins?
1: It fits more into, so everything that I have done since about 2018 has really been about the brand that is Impact X. Okay. So we are, yes. I'm allowed to do these things because they advance Impact X. One of the things we noted is that if you are Kobe Bryant, if you are Jay-Z if you are Serena Williams, you have the ability to access deals, you have the ability to access capital because you are famous and people want to be next to you and want to have money uh, with you for particular reasons, and I'm sure all of which are good. When you are a emerging fund manager, the question of being known is important. So we made a determination that you had to get we had to get more well known. And part of getting well known was to speak on panels and do other sorts of things. And in time, people started to discover that we were around not just entrepreneurs who needed capital, but then also funders. Uh, and we've had now in interesting institutional funders who now have joined us in our quest. But then also some other outlets. And um, a book was, you know, Transworld imprint of Penguin wanted to, Penguin Random House wanted to sort of publish something. and so there was the book deal happened. And then, I don't know exactly. One day our publicist contacted me to say, there is a television program that's looking for a host. They have been talking to my chair of my board, Rick Lewis, who is, you know, a fantastic entrepreneur and runs an organization, many, many multiples the size of our, of Impact X. He's another black man who is running a financial, uh, uh, an investment firm. His is private equity they had asked him or were approaching him to be, to really sort of be, the person who was the host on this television program. And he was sort of a little bit ambivalent about it. Mm-hmm. And then he, he recommended that I do it. Okay. That's how it happened. Okay. And so those two, and then I started to meet with the producers who had actually licensed a format from the United States from NBC Universal called The Prophet. Yucky. This is a CNBC sure. show. Sure. Yeah. This is, it's the same show. Yeah. It's just done here in the UK. And they asked me to be The Prophet. Mm-hmm. And then they changed the name to The Moneymaker. So then I became The Moneymaker. Okay. And that's that's okay. how it all Came together. (laughs) Okay, but it fits because it shows it shows people how Impact X really thinks. Because if you, when you watch the program, you see us dealing with companies we would never deal with at Impact X. But these are small and medium sized businesses in various parts of the country. We would do that. That's fine. We would do that. But they're in in sectors and industries that we would not look at because they don't have the fast growth potential. And the premise of the program is that I will bring my money, but I'll also bring my ideas for transition and transformation to them. Plus, then I'll bring all of my connections to help make that transformation work because I want to get return on my money that is actually invested. And the show is not someone else's money. This is really my money mm-hmm. that's going into this. And I'm like, this is my hard-earned money. So you have an incentive. <laughs> sure. the, the incentives are aligned for you to really be very effective in trying to make these organizations work. Sure. And so I I did that show and we did four episodes. It was, and we we did it all during COVID, so when it was during lockdown, in fact, but because it was television and because that was considered a critical industry, I think it was, it was, it was yes, called yes. a critical, mm-hmm. and then we, we made the show.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I would have never guessed based on, you know, the the whole, way it looked. I didn't see a lot of people with masks right. or any of that stuff. So. Oh,
1: you should have seen me. <laughs> I, in, in fact, I had to be, I was isolated. So everyone was tested. So we were tested twice a day. The very beginning, and then if anything happened, I, ne- I didn't get COVID during that particular period, so I, we didn't have to shut down production because of me. The, the whoever it was would be shut down, and the crew would be isolated. and We had several different camera crews, and we had uh, all sorts of okay, so backward. a lot of redundancy. Yeah, a lot of redundancy. Wow, and some redundancy. This sure, is, this is, yeah, this affordable is yeah. episodic television. <laughs> so wasn't so, all that, and then we were able to, but we were able to continue shooting, and so I, it was very, it was extremely lonely. Because at lunchtime, where you think about everyone sitting down, my lunch would be brought to me in the car. The car that you see in the program would be brought to me in the car, and I'd sit in the car, and I'd eat my lunch. After I eat my lunch, I'd put back on my mask, go to the set, the, um, I would be um, cameras and it's the set being, you know, this is real time. It's not as though we're scripting all of this. So then it's like, and I'd be sitting in the car also thinking about what questions I wanted to ask my, and what I wanted to do next. And I'd be thinking about sort of who I needed to engage as my network in order to bring to the equation. So all of that would be happening. And then, you know, let's start filming and then you film. And then I, you'd go to your hotel room. If we were staying overnight, your food would come on a tray and you'd sit in your hotel room until the next morning.
0: Very isolating.
1: It was very isolating. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Well, I'm sure it was an interesting experience nonetheless. Oh,
1: definitely. It was a fantastic experience. I got a lot of thinking done.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got a lot of thinking done. So speaking of thinking, let me ask you about a mindset hack. Mm -hmm. So what is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack, one that you can imagine, one that you know of, or one that you practice?
1: Okay, the mindset hack that I practice, many people find this very odd, is every Sunday I go to church. And it's interesting because when I... And I go to church for a variety of reasons. I love the community of church. Because for me, there it's always been, since days of my youth, in college I went to church. I was the dean of the, I was the head of the deacons in college. I went to church in, in law school. I've always gone to church. Sunday I wouldn't know what to do if I wasn't in church. But the, I've always gone to these very quiet and sort of relatively conservative black Baptist churches. You know, they are great anthems, sensational spirituals, all that sort of stuff, handbell choir. But you also have the handbell choir, too. And you'd be singing the Hallelujah chorus on Easter, so it was a, it was a big range. And so, and, and then I used to attend university university chapel at undergrad. And when I went to law school, actually, there was a guy named Peter Gomes who was the first Black dean of the chapel at Harvard. And so his and he was such a minister. He was such a preacher. And that's when I noted that throughout all of that, including in my youth, I was going to listen to other voices, and I was going to listen to a different set of. I mean, a similar set of values being talked about, but utilizing a different sort of a text in order to, you know, talk about things. and But always we were talking about social change, always we were talking about the ways in which we'd be helping, always we were talking about money. Mm-hmm. None of these things were sort of, you know, in the idea of do-goody. It was always in the context of there has to be a tangible expression of the things that are important and that the values, we have to actually live them and evidence them in these tangible ways. So for me, it became very clear that listening to the small, clear and the small, still voice was very important. And I could hear that in church. You know, church is very quiet if you think about a single person speaking to a congregation often of hundreds and that being a one way sort of a presentation. It's like it's like a lecture. And I find that to be a resetting on a weekly basis to help to get your mind right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to help you get your mind sort of focus on the on the consequential and the important. It's not you know, Eric, it's like, yeah, you know, I, I get it, Eric, you're, you're stressed about this, you're stressed about that. There are bigger things in the world than your stress. And in fact, you know, if you really look, there have been a whole lot of advantages that have been accruing to you in order to help you to actually get over those sorts of things. And hopefully you'll be using those in order to help other people and focus on that help, not being so focused on you and your needs, but focus on other people and what can their need, how their needs can be satisfied. So for me, that's exactly it. And then the other thing I do is I read a lot and reading is very, very important and reading Fiction. Mm. Fiction is what I read. I don't read facts, fact-based books. Yeah. <laughs> so I just read I read fiction. I love fiction.
0: So I'll get to asking you more about that. But I have one last kind of technical question to ask, and that is about AI.
1: All right, yeah.
0: Yeah. So coming from the tech space and now seeing this mm-hmm. huge proliferation, yeah. how are you now and you talk about future proofing, right. you know, in the jobs that are created. How are you now seeing AI in the companies and, and advising them on how because every company has to have some aspect of it. So how are you now seeing that? I don't I know you can't be that prescriptive with your companies, but or not, but right, right, right. right. But but how are you seeing the use of it and the implementation of AI tools in business being particularly for businesses of color because we often are left behind. When these things are happening,
1: so the companies that we have backed, most of, many of them have an AI component associated with them. Marshmallow, which is probably our our best performing company, is using artificial intelligence and other things in order to be able to help people find the right priced insurance who are expats coming to the UK, and um, to be able to scrape the internet for sort of data that can then be associated with their applications to get them a, a decent premium, and that. Organization been growing hand over fist and has been actually uh, you know create, becoming more and more valuable. It's actually considered it's actually named by Financial Times earlier this year as the second fastest growing company in Europe. It is doing very great things. AI is part of that. So black people in AI very much using the and leveraging the equip, the um, tools generative AI, which we see so much of, which is uh, you know with fabulous kind of valuations and huge rounds of capital being invested in them. Those are coming. I haven't seen a I haven't seen very many women-led companies and I've not seen any black companies that are actually getting that kind of money for those large data sets to do generative AI activity. But I don't necessarily think that that is not, those aren't the sorts of bets we're placing anyway. They're just too capital intensive for the kind of work that we're doing at ImpactX. And then, but the thing that, that I find is that AI is an important tool. And the last four companies I've run have all been AI-driven companies. They've all been sort of using large language models. They've been using either natural language processing or computer vision, and both of which come from from large data sets in order to be able to do something, to be able to predict um, or to be able to diagnose or to be able to do something. So in any case, that's something I'm very, very familiar with and very used to. What I find concerning for me, so, so what your audience should take from here is that AI is an important tool. I don't believe that it is a scary tool for some of the reasons people think of it as being scary. What I do think of it being, however, absolutely again, stops me in my tracks is that I believe that many of the places in which we have found a place of solace and play as black people and women and places where we have found opportunity are very susceptible to AI disruption. So to the extent we are diagnosticians in healthcare to the extent so that we're trying to figure and we're trying to make sure that we can say, this is what a cancer cell looks like, or to the extent that we are lawyers who are working on, you know, regulatory activities. And so we have been then comparing documents or that we're working on the entry for litigation or something, that all of these things are highly susceptible to being disrupted by artificial intelligence. And even those of us who are going into engineering, the type of engineering that might be able to be done with low-code or no-code engineering, the idea that you are going to be one of those sort of people that might actually be replaced. I think that is one of the things that, in my opinion, is very... Scary mm-hmm. that um, you know those places that have created a uh, you know a, a vast black middle class, a um, vast group of independent women. That those are some of the places that are going to be um, disrupted. And what does that then do for the next? Because we've been talking about STEM, STEM, STEAM for a while. I just I just wonder. I do think that some of the tools around problem solving, the tools around forward thinking and sort of future thinking are important and still can be helpful from those sorts of spaces. But the place where you thought you might be able to start in a career and then stick with that career for a long period of time, because it felt fairly future resistant or future proof, I really question, I really question that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. it concerns me.
0: Yeah. Well, th- thank you for that. Good stuff to take from this conversation, folks. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the Eric that's not talking investment, not doing TV shows, not writing books. And you mentioned you're a big reader, but like we like to ask if you're a reader, a watcher, or a listener, and what are some of your favorite reads, watches, or listens, or what other things engage you in your uh, leisure life?
1: You know, I'm a reader and a watcher. I'm not necessarily a listener. In other portions of my life, I have been a listener. I was recently in New York, and I was watching... Uh, Leslie Odom Jr. Mm. and Kara, I forget Kara's last name, in Pearly Victorious, which is a a revival of a show, Ozzy Davis and Judy uh, and Ruby D, the very famous, you know, the power couple that they had on Broadway, and it ran for a number of performance, a huge number of performances, and then was turned into a musical. And so there was was long life to that particular piece of IP. So I went to see the revival, and I'm sitting there listening, and I love The kind of poetry. I love the sort of cadence. I love this kind of farcical approach to the existence of Black South, White South, in the period of rampant Jim Crow. And, and it's just fascinating to listen to it and to sort of breathe in. And the last show that I'd had that experience with was another show that had a Black actor. And it's not a Black show, but it was the Lehman trilogy. And one of our investors, a guy named Adrian Lester, was in it and he got a Tony nomination for his role. And he it was just another one of these where the language was so interesting. So I do like listening, but it's also, it's also viewing. I'm not sure that I would just listen to that on its own, but I need to view it because there's something in terms of the embodiment of the characters. So that was one. And and so, and I loved musicals for a long time. I would spend a lot of time. And in fact, if you were in my car, you probably, I'm probably is on Magic Musicals right now <laughs> where I just listen to lyric as poetry sure. and I like yeah. songs and that sort of thing. So I do listen to that. But those are, the ones that I really like are those that are sort of trying to move us a little bit forward. There, I was thinking about Ragtime the other day and Wheels of a Dream, which um, was done, which was sung by Tuskegee Airman's son. So that is Brian Stokes Mitchell. His father was Tuskegee Airman. And then Audra McDonald, uh, of course, you know, sort of the the most decorated um, Broadway star of all time. Mm -hmm. And those two talking about uh, sort of what is their aspiration for their young son in America. Mm-hmm. And what is up there for him? And, and how is it possible that he, as well as this car, which Colehouse Walker owns, uh, how are these two things somewhat similar? And it's just like, you know, that sort of beauty. And, and Sarah Brown Eyes. I mean, there's just a number of songs there. So I listen to that sort of stuff. And for me, it's not just listening. to; It's, it's sort of, you know, a filling station that comes from that sort of music. The books that I read, I read books that are, you know, m- my favorite kind of a kind of a book is actually a short story. And my favorite authors are the Black women who write short stories who are able to condense like a J. California Cooper. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, J. California Cooper is a genius mm-hmm. in terms of her ability to, I have enough facts in my life, right? I have enough reality, sure. you know? Oof. And so to move one step away from reality, because all this is based in some reality, I don't, I don't find, she is not really existing in the place of Afrofuturism, although I've just been reading Octavia butler and so i do, oh but she scares me you know i read <laughs> i read that work and i think about how close to reality that that actually becomes yes. it's sort of like the Handmaid's Tale. I forget the person who wrote those, but you know, it feels that close. And then any moment we could sort of turn a corner, and that would be the world in which we are. And without a lot, of, lot of vigilance, so it also then makes me sort of think that the work that I'm doing is important, and that the vigilance that I that I pay is is critical, and the team that I put around me, uh, and that's working with me is also very critical. So those types of things are. But when I think about if I were to have something that was a Something I could consume and then it would be a relaxing consumption would be J. California Cooper.
0: Those are going to be in the show notes, folks. (laughs) And it's Margaret Atwood.
1: Margaret Atwood, that's exactly it.
0: The Handmaid's Tale, yes. Have you ever
1: heard of Barbara, Barbara McNeely? Who yes. wrote Yeah, Blanche on the Lamb and sort mm-hmm, of that sort mm-hmm. of set of yeah. you know, here's an unexpected story about a black woman who is a detective, and she has this agency, and she's but she's also a house cleaner, and she's a single mother, and she's you know, sort of a you know a, a woman who's really sort of alive in this world and in her own body, and you know she's she's. Uh, you know, thought of highly and she's thought of lowly and she's thought of, you know, it's a a bunch of things, but I like that. I like that story also. And I like the presentation of those kinds of.
0: That one reminds me of the Jill Scott played the role in the um, ladies detective agency. agency,
1: the number one ladies detective agency. Yeah. I do. Yeah, i read those also. It lasts for two seasons on HBO or one season?
0: I didn't even have it, so I, I only oh, caught it. You only caught it. <laughs> I caught it. Yeah. it but yeah. yeah, I believe it's two yeah. two seasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Eric, this has been so lovely catching up with you. I appreciate the time you've spent. Well, if I can riff just a little bit, tell us a little bit about art because I can tell that you are an art connoisseur. Collector, everything about that, just a little bit. Yeah,
1: do you know? Do you know what I would say? We are surrounded by art because there is another area in which there is not a proportionate investment. We underindex in terms of the investment mm-hmm. in women and people of color in the art world. Mm-hmm. When you think about who are considered the classics and who are considered the most centerpiece of the canon, it's generally white men. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and in, you know, certainly Rothko and and Motherwell and. Judd and all those sort of people, are Van Koons and all these sort of people are very important in Bradford. Everyone's very important. However, the question of what should we be doing with our resources, the limited number of resources that we have, in order to advance those sorts of practices, so that women and people of color can actually continue, and as well as under as helping with the institutions uh, that that support them, as well as helping with the sort of artifacts that come from this. So, you know, we spend a bit of time. Trying to figure out which artists we wish to back in terms of their careers, only emerging artists. Once they get to a certain point, they, they've already they they have everything they need. There's no need for us. And so, how can you be back catalytic to those careers? Then there are also institutions. There are art galleries. There are um organizations, There are art festivals that are driven by women and people of color. We make sure that you buy from those sorts of spaces, also create a commercial relationship with them because capital is important. and then bring your friends into that same sort of discourse. Don't just do it yourself and sort of you know quietly do it, but we do it, we, you know, try and encourage other people in the same direction so we can pool our resources. It's always about pooling resources. And then the final thing is if people are going to enter the canon, We need the canon. The only way that they can enter the canon is if we make sure in some ways that there are these artifacts from the kinds of things that they're doing. So we make sure that we help to underwrite scholarship and articles that are being written about people in reviews so that those things can actually outlast any particular art exhibition and or opening. And so those are the sorts of things. So what you see around you is, you know, it's very powerful. And generally what we deal with here in the UK are women uh, the African diaspora. That's what we do. And lots of this work isn't by, but that's that's really our intention. And then we try and loan as much as we can, and make sure that uh, that you know, those people that we know who can write about, and those people we know who can actually purchase, are also part of the solution set. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. So that's what you say.
0: Wonderful. Wonderful. Eric, thank you so so much. This has been wonderful. And as any any last thoughts that you'd like to share with the audience before we
1: sign off. I do think that, you know, being a collective is so much more useful and interesting and long-term. It can take a while longer, but the momentum that's associated with being able to persuade other people that there is a vision that we can share and there's activity that we can do together is what really changes the world. In the time frame that I'm interested in, I'm not interested in 50 years from now or 100 years from now. I'm interested in the next five years having a very different discourse about what is the state of Black Britain and what is the state of the Black world. So that's what I'm looking for.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. All right, folks, this has been another episode of the podcast. You can catch us Tuesdays at globalcitizenspod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do like, share, subscribe leave us a review it helps others find great content on the internet and as always bye for now